Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Mark Blake returns to tell Nate about his book, Is This the Real Life? The Untold Story of Queen. In this episode, Mark and Nate discuss Queen and their brilliant lead vocalist, Freddie Mercury, how they conquered the world of classic rock in the 70s, how they fell out of favor in the U.S. in the 1980s, Freddie's tragic death, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today Mark Blake is returning, this time to discuss his books, Is This the Real Life? The Untold Story of Queen and Freddie Mercury, A Kind of Magic. Mark, welcome back. Hi. It's really exciting to have you on because uh, Queen and Freddie Mercury were probably my very first favorite rock group that I picked out myself as an eight-year-old. They were the, the first band that I singled out as my band, and, and it's been a problematic journey you know in homophobic texas uh through the classic and the punk rock eras to to i've had a lot of ups and downs with freddie mercury so this could might get kind of personal for me so <laughs> but anyway welcome back what inspired you to write to become the mark lewison of queen as it were I, I wouldn't want to think of myself as the Mark Lewis or anything, really. I think, yeah, let's leave that to Mark Lewison. But I, I, I've ended up writing two books. Well, I mean, I only really think about Is This Re the Real Life as my book because the other one was a photographic book. The other one you mentioned very much a photographic book, and I just provided some text. But that's all about the photos. Um, is This the Real Life is the one I sort of researched from scratch. Honestly, I did it for the money. I was offered, I was approached by a publisher who said, we want someone to write a biography of Queen. Are you interested? And I said, yes. And they gave me some money to do it. But I was interested because I was always fascinated by their story and specifically Freddie Mercury's story. And I think Freddie Mercury would totally approve of your motives. If anybody got it, it was Freddie Mercury. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that he, he was there. He wanted to be a pop star and, and earn a living as a pop star. I always wanted to earn a living writing about pop music. So we both got lucky in the end, didn't we? <laughs> absolutely. And Freddie Mercury, I mean, like growing up as a kid, as an eight-year-old who was into Queen, when all of... All but one of my friends were into Kiss instead, and and people respected Queen. I mean, obviously, you know, We Will Rock You and Bohemian Rhapsody kind of bowled over the classic rock crowd, and they got played on FM radio in America and, and filled stadiums. But there was always this undercurrent of homophobia, and people would tease us about it. And, you know, over time, I became more and more self-conscious and kind of dropped my loyalty to Queen or didn't talk about it as much. But Freddie Mercury had another sort of closet he was in, and this is one I wasn't aware of until very, very recently. I mean, the last 15 or years or so, looking back, and that was his ethnicity. Tell us a little bit about Freddie's background. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I think just to backtrack quickly, I mean, your experience of that is, is very different. I think being in America and being, I'm sure, significantly younger than me, I never experienced any kind of homophobia for liking Queen, even though people kind of knew Freddie Mercury was gay. I think it was a very different experience perhaps here in the UK. And the ethnicity thing ties in with this as well in the UK. And again, I don't know what this is like in America. But yeah, I mean, he was born in Zanzibar in East Africa and educated in India. And he didn't really discuss his background at all, his ethnic background at all growing up and certainly not in early interviews with Queen. He did touch on it occasionally. Um, I think the reason being that in the UK, certainly in the UK at that time, there were not a lot of Asian pop stars. Asian music's been assimilated into the mainstream here now. It's, it's very different. But in 1964, 65, when he was first in the UK and going to school, going to college here, listening to pop music there were not a lot of asian there were no asian role models in, in pop music at that time and based on what i was told by you know the guys that he was at school with in india you know he just wanted to be part of british culture and he never felt particularly inclined to advertise his background or discuss it at all and one thing that from reading your books that i hadn't picked up on but when i when you pointed me in this direction and then I went back and listened, I could hear it in his music. And that was the influence of the great Egyptian singer, Um Kulthum, and the great uh, Indian singer, the first playback singer, Bollywood singer, Lata Mangakeshkar, if I'm butchering the name badly enough. But there are elements of both those musics. Um Kulthum has this epic, sweeping style. And, and, you know, obviously in the Middle Eastern modes. And Lata's music is is very light. I wouldn't want to say, uh, you know, frippery or anything, but but comparing the two, I mean, they're very sort of polar opposites, but they, they both have these Eastern modalities that they're singing in. But um, you can, when you listen to Freddie Mercury and you hear these, these two artists, suddenly these missing pieces that don't come from the rock tradition are very apparent in his work. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that he ever would have discussed it. I don't think he ever discussed those singers or, or those influences necessarily with the other members of, of Queen. And I must be honest, I, I have never asked them, which is probably remiss of me. But I think those influences may well have been there subliminally. I mean, this this background he had in, in um, a, a private school in India is very is very important to this in, in Bombay, now called Mumbai, because it was sort of a school that was run on kind of English, what we call public school, English public school lines. So it was very British in a lot of ways, very colonial. But there was this mishmash of influences. So he'd have had the BBC World Service. He'd have had been picking up American, some American radio, and of course all the Indian radio as well. So there was this complete mix of influences. And the same when he went back to Zanzibar he would have had the African influences coming in. He mentioned the Egyptian singers and so on. And I think all of this stuff was kind of swirling around his brain by the time he came to England. So his background musically is very different from, say, Brian May or Roger Taylor's, who would have only been exposed to a certain thing from, from living in the UK, listening to UK radio, which is far, far less diverse in the 60s than, than American radio would have been. So, yeah, I think those influences were subliminal, but, subliminal, but they certainly started to manifest themselves later on in Queen in his writing. Absolutely. And so did his uh, fascination. I think of all the members of Queen, I'm sure they were all familiar with English Music Hall. You couldn't avoid it growing up in England when they did in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. But he was, I think, the most Music Hall influenced and the most opera influenced in Gilbert and Sullivan, the light opera tradition in England as well. So he brings all these things in. But then he comes to England in the mid-60s, and it's a classic. You know, it's very much like his contemporary Sid Barrett or David Bowie or Mark Bolan, sort of a classic second-generation English rock type where he's very into the Beatles and the Stones and the blues boom and all these moves, as well as American R&B and soul. Yeah, he, well, he wanted to fit in. I mean, when I, you know, 
one of the guys that was his was the lead singer in his school band in India is a guy called Bruce Murray, who's also Asian. And that he came to England independently at the same time. And he was saying to me, he said, we just wanted to fit in here. We wanted to be in the Beatles, we wanted to look like we were in the Beatles, we wanted to listen to the Beatles. It wasn't going to come to the UK and start sort of banging the drum for an Indian or Zanzibaran singer or anything like that. He wanted to listen to the Beatles and the Who and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks, which is what everybody else was listening to. And that was the music that he'd been kind of daydreaming about when he was when he was living overseas. Um, so yeah, it was all his influences were classic, those same classic influences, and obviously Jimi Hendrix as well, which I think was a huge part of it. And I don't know, I wondered if because Jimi Hendrix was black, I had a kind of mixed parentage. I know that there was some Native American there as well. I, I wonder if that may have may have influenced uh, Freddie Mercury as well, because he was looking at a kind of a, a, a musician of colour you know, which maybe even made it more relatable. But that's just me speculating on that. He again, he never discussed it, and all the others said was that he was just the world's biggest Jimi Hendrix fan. And you can see where Hendrix would be a, a, an attractive role model for him, mm. both because of the outsider status as, as as a half black, half Native American, or whatever the proportions are. But ethnic, ethnically, he was very different. And he, then he was the king of flamboyance. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was absolutely the showman of the psychedelic era, and that. That had to be a draw to Freddie Mercury, who was one Absolutely. of the great showmen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a po- he had a poster of uh, Freddie Mercury pinned next to his bedroom mirror, and there is a photograph of him wearing a hat uh, and, and sort of kneeling down with a guitar. With you mean he had a, pho- a photo yeah. of Hendrix, not of Freddie Mercury? Although I wouldn't put it past Freddie to have a picture of himself. Have his own <laughs> photo? No. Yeah, looking at himself as well as the mirror. But no, he, he was a, sorry, I, I probably said that wrong. A uh, photo of Hendrix pinned to the mirror. Yeah, I mean, he he, he idolised Jimi Hendrix, followed him around London. Hendrix did a load of gigs all around the UK and, and, and Freddie Mercury sort of hitchhiked around England to, to, to go to these shows. I think Roger Taylor told me he saw him 11 nights in, in a row. I'm not sure that's true, but it sounds good, doesn't it? But, it, you know, it, it definitely gives you the impression of just how into Jimi Hendrix he was. And like you say, it wasn't just the music, it was the image, it was the flamboyancy. And let's hear our first song. This is the first Queen single, Seven Seas of Rye off of Queen 2. The Seven Seas of Rye, which was the first uh, Queen song to trouble the charts at all. It was a version of it was on their first album, and then they re-recorded it for the second album, and it became a single. And one of the things that's sort of fascinating for me, going back and looking at Queen, is that time has kind of telescoped them. So in my mind, I always think of them as sort of a combination, at least at the beginning, as a combination of Led Zeppelin and Yes, but. When they came out, they were part of the glam rock movement. They were contemporaries, you know, followed shortly on the heels of Ziggy, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album. Mark Boland and T-Rex were already big superstars, but they were coming right out of the gate at the same time as Roxy Music and were very much seen in that same light and their image helped them fit in. Yeah, it did. But I think a lot of that was a, that was a kind of an accident, really, because the first album, they recorded their first album sometime before it was actually released due to various business deals and so on. And this is something that, that I know Brian May and Roger Taylor have talked about a lot, is that they were sitting there with this album ready to come out. They were already moving towards what was Queen 2 by then, and they were frustrated because they were still stuck you know, still stuck. They hadn't come out yet. And of course, all this other stuff, which you mentioned, David Barry, Ziggy Stardust, Roxy Music, all this other stuff was happening and they were terrified of being left behind. So although they they kind of looked like they were piggybacking off that stuff, really a lot of their ideas and a lot of what they were doing was before 
Bowie. I mean, Roger Taylor talked about going to see David Bowie playing a small gig when he just started to, to do reveal the Ziggy Stardust persona and, and just feeling absolutely gutted and walking away thinking we, we, we were too late. He's beaten us to it because obviously they were thinking something quite androgynous, not as extreme as that, but they were moving in that flamboyant glam direction themselves and they, they kind of felt that Bowie had stolen their thunder. So I think a lot of that was an accident. It was the fact that their album was held up for as long as it was and then by the time it came out it, you know they were they were suddenly pigeonholed with all these other bands and let's backtrack a little bit and introduce the other members of queen because to me queen is one of these great english four-piece rock groups in the tradition of the beatles and led zeppelin but one that was you know later groups such as joy division and u2 have also done and you know there's this theory that rock groups are either dictatorships or they're democracies and these four pieces with four strong personalities tend to be the ones, if any bands are going to be democracies, it's these four pieces. And Queen, for as much as Freddie Mercury dominated, both in terms of image and a pretty big chunk of the music, but all four members wrote major hit songs and brought a lot of talent to the table. Yeah, I mean, and I think that there's something they had in comparison with the Beatles is that all four of them wrote you know, which is which is very, very unusual. And all four of them actually wrote hits as well, which I think is important. But you mentioned other bands and, and you know, d- Democracy. I mean, you two have lasted as long as they have because they split the money four ways. Queen didn't split the money four ways until quite, well, very late in their recording career. And so, you know, it was, it may have been a democracy, but it was an uncomfortable democracy because you had four writers, certainly after those first two or three albums, when everybody's confidence had come up as writers, all of them wanted to have a piece of those records. And I think you you can hear that in the music. You can hear this creative struggle. You know, as, as great as it is to have four people who can write songs, it's it's a bit of a ball ache to try and uh, accommodate them all on one record. And I think that, to me, is something that was very prevalent in, with Queen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a sort of a quirk of the music business that, writing the songs is where you make the real money you know, the performance royalties and and you know the, the members of the band get paid for performing in concerts and performance royalties from the records but the real money from records is from the songwriting credits and the singles in queen's case you know when you've got a single like bohemian rhapsody that's the biggest single in english history up to that time and roger taylor writes the b-side and he makes as much money as freddie mercury yeah. and the other two guys are sitting there holding the bag with nothing in it you know you can yeah. see where that would create the tension Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, you got Roger Taylor, suddenly the drummer's bought himself a brand new house and he's zooming up to the studio in a really fancy new sports car. And the guitarist and bass player are sitting there thinking, what's, what's happened here? You know, how, how did that happen? And definitely, that definitely created tension. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of tension is very peculiar to, to Queen, though. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned the Who. Townsend was always a songwriter in The Who. Entwistle did a bit, Daltrey a tiny bit. But, it, you know, it was always accepted that Townsend was the Who songwriter. So I think it, it obviously became more problematic within Queen because it was kind of Freddie Mercury at the top of the pile. I think kind of then Brian May was the most prolific. But then you've got the drummer, you know, making as much money as the singer, you know, with, with, with songwriting royalty. So, yeah, their, their situation was quite unique as British four pieces go. And it did even out a little bit because Brian May wrote We Will Rock You and that went out with Freddie's We Are the Champions and that was a massive seller. And then John Deacon, I think the bass player, was pretty hurt by that because he didn't even play on We Will Rock You. But he gets his revenge when another one bites the dust is a massive hit. And then in the 80s, Roger Taylor gets the writing credit for Radio Gaga. So in the end, they all scored on some massive hit singles. They did all score massive hit singles, but also it's slightly debatable. Uh, how can I put this sensitively? It's debatable as to whether Radio Gaga perhaps was entirely Roger Taylor's own work. He had the credit for it because it was his idea, but I, I do know that Freddie Mercury did an awful lot of work on that record as well. So it, it was sort of, I think there was a little bit of division of credits there to make it, to keep everyone happy. There was a lot of that going on. Don't forget John Deacon wrote their first American hit, You're My Best Friend, which which none of the rest of the band really liked at all. They thought it was very soft. 
I think Freddie Mercury even refused to play the electric piano on it because he felt that was undignified. He only wanted to play a grand piano. So, I mean, that, and then, then this song that, you know, that the, the record company thought was great and should be released as a single, and the rest of the band weren't that keen on it. And then, of course, it's their first American hit. Because the thing about John Deacon is he, he, he didn't write a huge amount, but when he did write, he, he got lucky with hits, like you say, with another one, Bites of Dust, which, again, is another song that Freddie Mercury had a lot to do with as well. And that's one thing that reading through this, I was kind of not pleasantly surprised, but I was pleased that for all their indulgence and Freddie in particular had, you know, a very promiscuous lifestyle and cocaine was everywhere and they all partied a lot, that these are really pretty decent guys that, that, that treated each other pretty well, that treated the fans pretty well. And, and, you know, you can kind of feel good as a Freddie Mercury fan, like, this was not a bad guy, given the amount of power and money he had thrown at his feet. Yeah, I don't know. I would there's, there's a backtrack and say that they didn't all party. You mentioned cocaine. They didn't all take cocaine. Brian May. Very true. Brian May, definitely. Brian May has said he's never did. So let, I, I, I will say that to save our lawsuits. But, um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, it's a short answer. Is I, is I don't know. I think they were the four musketeers. They fought each other. They fought a great deal over for creative reasons. They fought over the music. But I think woe betide anybody who came in from the outside and and, and challenged them or had a go at them. They were pretty good at joining forces and, and, and creating a united front. So I think that was very much the thing, Queen. That they they did treat I think they did treat each other well. Ultimately, I think towards the end of their recording career, towards the end of Freddie Mercury's life, I think they helped pull them together a lot more. But I think you know, as as individuals, I think all of them. I have to say, I do think all of them have struggled over the years with aspects of having been in a band this big, having been in Queen, and then having lost their singer under the in the circumstances in which they did, I think I do think that took a toll on on, on all of them over the years. Yeah, I kind of got in there, but yeah, yeah, it, it would be impossible not to be impacted by you know such a totally unique experience as being one of the great rock stars of the seventies and eighties and playing to stadiums and that kind of pressure. But um, the the slow start though wasn't just about the first album taking a while to record it, it 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 also took them a long time to get the band together and to get to a point where they had interest from labels and we're going to hear the next song and this is a song about their first management team and then we'll talk about the unusual management deal that they had at the beginning and this is queen death on two legs And that was Freddie Mercury's Death on Two Legs off of Queen's um, Night at the Opera album. And this, I think that song resulted in litigation. Tell us a little bit about their deal with Sheffield and Trident Studios and that, how that worked and then how it came to haunt them in the end. Well, yeah, what it, what it was is they got a deal with two two brothers, Norman and Barry Sheffield, who'd been, uh, you know, been musicians here in the 1950s. This was in London, in Soho. They built a studio, basically, called Trident Studios, which was this amazing state-of-the-art facility in the West End of London. And they formed a production company, and the idea being that they were going to take Queen along with two or three other bands, stroke artists, and groom them. And then, you know, record their music, manage them, dress them, and then sell them as a package to to a major record company. And that's what they did with Queen. It's taken Queen a long time to get a deal. They hadn't had the interest they wanted for, you know, all of these guys had been doing this now since the late 60s. I mean, Brian May and Roger Taylor 
were playing gigs as 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 Smile, a trio called Smile in sort of 68. So we're now getting into the 70s. None of them were getting younger, although they were still young, but there was this sense of when's this going to happen? So they, they jumped at the chance to take the Trident deal. They probably had some misgivings about it at the time, but they were young and they didn't know any better. And what they ended up doing was signing with the Sheffield Brothers and Trident. And what that meant is that their management... Um, and their um, song publishing was all under was both under one umbrella, which is always seen as a conflict of loyalty. And effectively, Triant were like their record company before they went out and sold it to EMI. So everything they were being everything was being done for them by the Sheffield brothers. And now the Sheffield brothers spent an enormous amount of money on uh, on Queen. I mean, one of them, Norman, phoned me up after the book had come out. And I can't remember how much he told me he spent, but it was a lot of money. So at the end of the day, they invested hugely in this band and they then finally sold them to EMI effectively. But it's also meant that the management, their publishing, everything was all under one roof. And that is always a conflict of interest for any band, regardless of who it was. And so while they took that deal, they discovered pretty soon, I think within a couple of years, that it, it, it wasn't to their advantage. And of course, you know, Trident claimed that they owed a huge amount of money because they'd spent all this money on their recording bills, on their clothes, you know, the Zandra Rhodes designed costumes that Freddie Mercury was wearing, all of that stuff came out of Trident's pocket. And the idea being that, well, hang on, we need to recoup some of this before you see any money. So what happens is Queen finally becomes successful and start having hits and selling a lot of records, but they're not earning the sort of money they thought they should be earning. And that's when the problem started with, with the Sheffields and with Trident. Yeah, absolutely. And this is very much the era when a band had to go big or not at all. They were not part of the pub rock scene. Punk rock hadn't happened yet. There wasn't like a club circuit like there had been where you could make a nice living playing for dancing because kids were dancing in discos to records by this point. So if you were going to be a rock band, it did require a huge investment up front because you had to record you know, frankly, a really well-produced album, and you had to get out on the arena circuit. And they, they started out opening for another band that got sort of sucked into the glam scene, Mott the Hoople. And, you know, those are, talk about an odd couple. I mean, Mott the Hoople's kind of this Bob Dylan cross with the Kinks combo that came out of the late 60s and, and put out a string of great albums, built a big cult audience, but never had a hit until David Bowie, you know, swept them into the glam movement with all the young dudes. And so it's, I, I found it really charming and fascinating that, that Mott the Hoople and Queen, you know, that Queen toured and uh, opened for Mott the Hoople, both in England and the U.S., and that they were pals and got along great. And you couldn't imagine more, you know, disparate musical groups. No, I don't. I mean, I think there was a lot of respect for Mott the Hoople, though, because this is one of the things at that time, as, as arrogant and flamboyant as Queen could be, particularly Freddie Mercury, I do think certainly in that point in his career he was slightly still slightly in awe of musicians that were, were already successful and that were already doing it and i think ian hunter mont hooper's lead singer is, is somebody that definitely fitted into that category i know that ian hunter was a sort i mean ian, ian hunter was significantly older than him as well i mean this was a guy who'd been trying for to make it in music a long time before he did with mont hooper so perhaps i think there was something there that they could relate to in Queen, who also felt that they'd been trying for a long time. He took them under their wing, really. Mott the Hoople took them under their wing and encouraged them and gave them advice. And I do think that they were they were willing to listen to that as well. Unusually for Queen, I think they took I think they took that on board. So there was always a good relationship there. Though. I mean, no, I mean I've interviewed Ian Hunter and he did say that you know, by the time it got to things like Bohemian Rhapsody, he kind of lost track of where Queen were going musically. It wasn't what it wasn't what he wanted to do musically. He remembers hearing Freddie Mercury sitting down and playing Bohemian Rhapsody, and he was like, "Look, I just I have no idea what you're doing here," which I thought was quite amusing. Um, I think he was amused by them, Hunter. I think Hunter was amused by Queen's flamboyance and Freddie Mercury thought it was quite funny. So I think that 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 was it there. But I think it was the right band to put them with at that point in time. I think they learned a lot from what the Hoople. Absolutely. And and one more thing on the music 
um, mm. the business relationship with the Sheffields before we move on to their music is that I think for a group like Queen, where you sign a production deal, you get a stipend, which is a, a, a huge thing. I mean, Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor were sort of making a living selling used stuff at Covent Garden. And they suddenly had a stipend and they were busy recording an album and they were getting spare studio time. They would go in, David Bowie was producing Lou Reed's Transformer albums, so they would get to go in uh, after David Bowie and Lou Reed were through at the studio and Trident had the studio there, but you know they're accounting for every minute and racking it up as, as costs when the studio would have been empty had they not been recording right. an album there. No, I I mean, they used to have to, I mean, it was Kensington, it was actually Kensington Market rather than Covent Garden Market where they had this stall, but they never made any money on that stall. The stuff they were selling on it was rubbish, apparently. It was just terrible clothes and things. I think Freddie Mercury sold Roger Taylor's leather jacket once when he took it off, you know, just to, just to make <laughs> some money. But yeah, they, they were bit, you know, they were never great market traders here. This was, this was, I don't think they were living off that. But um, yeah, they had to go into the studio at, at 12 o'clock at night or something. They, they'd phone up on a, from a phone box in Soho and be told whether they, you know, whether they were able to get in that night. I don't know. I don't know enough about the terms of the deal to know whether Trident were charging them for that downtime. I mean, I'm sure Norman Sheffield told me once that he he bumped Diana Ross to let Queen record in, in Trident. He seemed to be so he, he he told me that as a way of illustrating how Queen were getting good time in the studio. I don't know if that's true or not. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a double it's a double edged sword this because they did have access to one of the best studios in London. And you know, which is far more than a lot of other bands had at that time. If you look at some of the other rock groups at that time, they were recording in much crappier studios um, rather than Trident. So, but again, it's, you know, it came back and bit them on the arse because, you know, they ratcheted up all these costs. How and whether those costs were legitimate or not all legitimate, I don't know. I suspect some of them were, though. I think it's six of one and half a dozen of the other, as we say here. And so let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Then when we come back, we'll talk about their next management deal. After Queen wakes up several hits into the game, several hit albums, big tours into it, and realize they're still getting their stipends and, you know, where's my Maserati? They they break with Sheffield and pretty acrimoniously, but because of the contracts, they have to keep giving them money for the rest of their career or long into their career. But then they sign with another pretty major force in the British music business at the time, and that's John Reed, who was Elton John's manager. And how on earth did one man manage Freddie Mercury and Elton John at the same time? Well, that's a question I asked myself, and I think that was a question John Reed asked himself after after a few years. Uh, you know, and according to interviews he's done, it it was not an easy relationship at all. But John Reed was a gay man. I mean, he was also Elton John's partner for some of that time. And he... A lot of the people he employed at Reed Enterprises were also gay. And I think in mid-70s Britain, this was probably quite an important, had played an important part in this because, you know, the attitudes towards homosexuality were very different then as they are now. It it hadn't even been legalised that long by kind of 1974, 75, 76, when all this was going on. And I think... To put it to put it simply, I think John Reed was a gay man. He had gay other gay men working for him, and they kind of looked after themselves and looked after their business, and were very good at looking after other other musicians. I think there's a Freddie Mercury and Elton John story that still hasn't been told about their friendship and about the kind of relationship they had. I'm not talking about a sexual thing, but also about the fact that I think Elton John gave a lot of advice to Freddie Mercury, particularly at this time. And I think that would have happened because of John Reed. I don't know what the nature of the relationship was towards the end. I think they still stayed friends. I, I, I have no idea. But I think this has a big plays a big part in it. Uh, and I think as a result of that relationship and the nature of John Reed and his business and the people he was with, I think perhaps the other members of Queen felt that Freddie Mercury was getting slightly more preferential treatment. I don't know. I think there was a sense has been a sense with Queen at various points and going with what Freddie Mercury wanted. 
because it was probably the easiest route. But I think the main thing is what John Reed turned around to them and said was, I will get you out of this deal. We tried and go away, write your next album, concentrate on the music. Don't worry about it, everything else. I will worry about that. I think that must have been incredibly appealing. And that's exactly what he did. John Reed did get them out of that deal, albeit with some uh, caveats. You know, the Sheffields continued to make money off Queen. I think up until about the game or maybe, maybe the works, I'm not sure but certainly into the 80s but uh yes it got them out of a very bad situation although you know the relationship with reed ended itself as well uh, after a few years yeah and i want to talk a little bit about the original sort of queen 1.0 production style where they they partnered with roy thomas baker in the studio and created a really unique body of work. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, they're a cross between Led Zeppelin and Yes, but they were way more than that. They were following up a lot of the technical ideas that the Beatles had pointed to with massive overdubs. They religiously avoided synthesizers until the very late 70s, early 80s. But in that classic 70s period, they created just this Rococo production style with Freddie's operatic vocals. And not just Freddie, but Brian May and Roger Taylor are also great singers. So these incredible harmony parts. Obviously, it all comes together on Bohemian Rhapsody, which, you know, is kind of Freddie's showcase. He wrote the whole thing and conceived of it. But without Brian May and Roger Taylor's vocals, you know, he couldn't have done that kind of thing. And without Roy Thomas Baker there to produce it, it just wouldn't have happened. And the critics, though, did not get it at all and were just actively hateful towards Queen throughout this whole period. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, 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 Roy, the Roy Thomas Baker thing first, I think he, yeah, he'd been involved right from the beginning with Queen. Um, he was part of, he was Trident's in-house engineer and he kind of learned on the job, so to speak, with Queen. I think he was very ambitious. He was very outspoken himself. I think he was the perfect foil, if you like, for Queen. He got on very well with Freddie Mercury. He knew how to deal with Freddie Mercury. He knew how to deal with all of them. And I think they, they had this mutually compatible working relationship. There were other people in the mix as well, though, and I, I'm going to mention Mike Stone, who was um, Roy Thomas Baker's engineer, because Mike Stone had a hell of a lot to do with those harmony vocals and, and, and how a lot of that stuff sounded. So it, it wasn't just Roy. Mike Stone played a big part in that, especially especially later on. But, yeah, they, they, I think there was this sky's the limit approach to recording with Queen. Everything needed to be bigger and louder and better and you know their imaginations were were given freedom to, to run right and all of the bands like you say all of the band were well disposed towards doing this you had three good singers in that band which is which is unusual uh, then and, and now so i think all of that was very very compatible and what was the other thing you talked about at the end there which i was going to get into oh, the, fact the, the critical critics. yeah the critics yeah. the critics i mean here's the thing because i'm i'm quite old i'm 55 so i'm i'm ancient but if i speak to music journalists that are more ancient than me most of them hate queen they they just hate them they just don't like them at all and these are the critics this is in the uk these are the critics who encountered them around the time we're talking about here these are the guys that were working for melody maker or new musical express and and, and encountered queen in 74 75 and almost to a man with one or two exceptions they all say well they were just unbearable they didn't find fred they didn't like freddie mercury found him arrogant they found him difficult to deal with they didn't particularly warm to to brian may and roger taylor nobody remembers john deacon at all so a lot of it is related to that again it's this this sense that their music was overblown it was overproduced um it, it they seemed arrogant and later on when they started to make money, they seemed, for, for, in those people's eyes, they reveled too much in the fact that they were wealthy and that they were successful. I mean, Freddie Mercury, particularly with songs like The Millionaire's Waltz, there was a general feeling that the way the UK was in sort of 1975, 76, 77, this was a very difficult time in terms of unemployment, economic unrest, poverty, racial tension all of these things i sort of vaguely remember from childhood and this idea of a band swanning around in satin you know ballet tights and slippers singing the millionaire's waltz was just completely <laughs> completely against the grain 
I find it funny, but a lot of the people, like I say, the people that were there at the time older than me just found Queen infuriating, as they have told me on many occasions. Absolutely. I'm a little younger than you. I'm 50, and so I'm a classic Gen Xer. And and my experience was that older people who had grown up on a blues-based or rhythm and blues-based rock style or a folk-based style just hated Queen. They didn't. They thought the classical stuff was pretentious. They thought that the heavy metal stuff was stupid and derivative. And the flamboyance they were repelled by, too. I mean, you've got people that are into this sort of Bruce Springsteen sincerity type stuff and talking about Americana. And Queen just really went against that and but it's funny because looking at the people younger than us to the millennials on down it seems like queen and freddie mercury are beyond criticism i mean they are just absolutely beloved by the younger generations absolutely i mean again i think you you would have had a very different experience being in being in the states to to me here in the uk and i i I often used to think and still do i don't know how this music would have come across in america in 1975 or 76 I, i just don't know but you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm if I can interrupt, I can tell you my older brother, who was like a heavy classic rock guy, he was into Boyster Colt and Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith, but he was also into jazz fusion and that kind of stuff. And so he really liked the um, progressive aspect. I remember being called into his room when I was eight or nine to hear Queen 2 on his quadraphonic stereo system. So for that kind of gearhead guy, he was very much. Um, the Queen was very appealing just in terms of, wow, they can really play, they can really sing, they're doing a lot of stuff with production ideas. And those guys were frankly clueless about homosexuality. And so you could be that flamboyant, just like Liberace had been that flamboyant in the 50s without people, you know, and women were going, oh, I'm in love with Lee, you know, without really (laughs) clicking. (laughs) But it's exactly the same here. Yeah, it's the same here, I think. Yeah. So that, 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 you know, that, that is the thing. Yeah, it's, it's, like I say, I got a son who's fifteen. He just likes the songs. He doesn't care about you know the backstory. They just like the music. And the music here, we're getting a bit off topic, but the music, Queen's music here, is used in so many television, radio adverts, incidental music in television programs. I mean, it, they they've turned into their own bank because the amount of money they're making by licensing their music is incredible. I don't know what it's like in the states, but here in the UK, you cannot switch on TV without hearing a Queen song in, used in an advert. Everything from furniture to chocolate to a cleaning fluid that you use to mop your floors. Um, it's in everything. So that music has seeped into the consciousness of a to- of a generation who just know, oh, that's Queen, that's Freddie Mercury with a moustache. And they, need, they don't know or care about the rest of it. And, and why should they, you know? Absolutely. And let's hear Innuendo, one of their 80s hits in the UK that did nothing in the States. And that was innuendo from Queen in the early 80s. And before we get there, though, in our in our narrative, they kind of went disco with it wasn't just disco because they had crazy little thing called love, which is a rockabilly song off their album, The Game. that came out in 79, 80. On that same album, they had another one, Bites the Dust, which is a variation of Sheik's Good Times and also Sister Sledge, We Are Family. I mean, John Deacon purportedly was in the studio when Sheik recorded Good Times and and swiped that baseline, frankly. But but Queen capitalizes on the disco and it wasn't an artificial thing. It wasn't quite it was closer to the Stones going disco than Kiss going disco, I would say, because they're recording in Switzerland where they're tax exiles and they're hanging out in discos and it's kind of a natural process for them and a very profitable one. Yeah, I think it was a natural process for Freddie Mercury and John Deacon, though. And and I don't care what Brian May and Roger Taylor say about it now. They 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 didn't really like it at the time. They've softened over the years because it's made them so much money. But you know, they 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 were there was a lot of argument about the, about this at the time, and particularly with another one bites the dust. You know, I think the thing is, 
John Deacon and Freddie Mercury liked that kind of music. Freddie was listening to that stuff in, in gay clubs in New York where he had an apartment by that time and was spending a lot of time. Same in uh, later on in Munich in Germany, which had the big gay community. He was hearing a lot of that kind of spare funk music and was like, let's let's do something like this. And John Deacon was a huge fan of Chic, as, as you mentioned. So those two kind of put their heads together, I think, a little bit on that one and railroaded it past the other two. There's a lot of argument. I mean, Brian May told me that Roger Taylor never liked the song at all to start with. Roger Taylor denies that. But those two kind of take pod shots at each other like an old married couple now anyway. So you, you don't know who's true. And, and it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, it, it, it is a great record. But at the time, and I remember that album and also Hot Space, which is the album that came out afterwards, which was which was very had a very strong dance direction, that stuff really upset a lot of uh, established Queen fans at that time here in the UK. People kind of felt like, well, hang on, they're meant to be a rock band. Disco music was seen as being flippant and a bit throwaway, a bit disposable. I think we've kind of realised there was some great music made at that time. But but back in 1980, 81, or the late 70s, it was a bit like, well, we'll back off, well, where, where are they going with this? What are they doing? What's happened to Queen? There was definitely a bit of that happening. Yeah, and 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 in the states, there's the whole enormity of disco after the Bee Gees uh, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and it just gets ridiculous. Where everybody, you know, I mentioned Kiss, but it's not just Kiss; it's Mac Davis and Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. Everybody is doing disco. Although personally, I like Kiss. I was made for loving. That's one of my favorite Kiss records. It's it's a fun song, but there was a sense that. It was like a cancer that everybody was going disco. And then suddenly there was the Disco Sucks riot in Chicago and disco suddenly was dead. And I think Queen got caught into that backlash. And I can remember the Hot Space album. I mean, I remember roller skating in 79, 80 and every, you know, if it wasn't YMCA by the village people, it was another one bites the dust that everybody (laughs) was skating to. Two years later, I remember being in Kmart and there were, endless copies of hot space in the discount bins oh yeah no absolutely it wasn't it wasn't a popular album here either not 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 really i mean we we didn't have the whole disco sucks thing we didn't have that ritual burning of records which i just think was ridiculous i mean that was just crazy but it I was know homophobic that, and racist <laughs> it was, it was you know. but it, i know it was also tied in with these kind of radio djs who told they had to change their formats wasn't it and suddenly they couldn't play Beloys to Colton Kiss and they wanted to they were being told they had to play this but either way I mean I remember reading about that in the music papers at the time and thinking the hell is this you know that was that was way too extreme but yeah I mean it was seen that they shot themselves in the foot a little bit with that I mean I, I don't entirely agree with that but definitely commercially they took a knock here in the UK and I know it was it, it really didn't work in the States either hmm. But in the UK, they do come back and they have a string of hits in the 80s. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about preparing for this was listening to those 80s Queen albums. And there's some good stuff in there and and numerous real hits, but they didn't click at all in America. And frankly, once they had lost some of their audience and had to step down the size of the the venues they could play, they just weren't going to do it. They never came back to the States. They never did, but there's a lot of other, there's a couple of other reasons for that rather than just the fact that Hot Space wasn't the hit. There were other other factors in, in this, which the band have kind of talked about. I mean, you know, first of all, Freddie had a kind of personal assistant stroke manager called Paul Prenter, who was this very, very divisive character, very divisive man, disliked by the rest of the group, hugely then and now. And both Brian May and Roger Taylor said to me that he was kind of whispering in Freddie's ear, saying, you're a bigger star. You, you know, you're a bigger star than Queen. You could do this on your own. You don't need to go to America. Fuck America. They've turned their back on you. There's an element of that going on. I mean, Prenter's dead, so I've got no idea if, if that was true. He can't answer for that. The other factor is there was a huge payola scan involving their American record company, involving a lot of record labels in America, which basically discovered that, you know, records were being effectively hyped into the charts there because radio DJs were receiving cash payments and hookers and cocaine and everything else. And, I mean, this is all pretty well publicised. And the idea being that, you know, the Queen's US label panicked, fired all their pluggers, I'm not saying they were all doing that, but fired their pluggers, and as a result of that, the Queen records weren't getting weren't getting uh, played on the radio. Um, 
I mean, obviously, it, you know, the, the other big thing was what happened with uh, the I Want to Break Free single, which was a huge hit here in the UK, I think in 1984, but had a video in which the members of Queen dressed as women. And that, while that didn't really raise any eyebrows in the UK, that did not go down very well in America. And they were, Brian May, according to Brian May, he was told by MTV, there's absolutely no way we're going to play this on American TV, on MTV. So there's that stuff as well. That's a lot of that... It, all relates to why they sort of abandoned America. Yeah, and that tradition of of British men dressing up in drag for fun and games, you know, we think of Monty Python, obviously, but the Stones had done it with one of their singles in 66, um, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows, which was also a relative flop in the States. It's just something that the States didn't get. No, Um, no, I mean, there's a great tradition of it here. You mentioned the musical thing. There's an element of that here. I mean, you know, it's just, it was just a part of the fabric of British comedy every so often. Oh, isn't it funny? Look, at guys come out dressed as a woman. So that's why they did it. But, you know, even at the time, I can remember thinking, I don't know how this is going to translate overseas, even in Europe. Um, I don't know how it did in Europe, but certainly not in, certainly not in the States, no. And, and, and in Latin America, where they were doing enormous stadium tours, they had a show in Brazil where that song had become an anthem for resistance to the military dictatorship and the crowd felt pretty <laughs> betrayed when Freddie comes out and dragged and, and mocks it. He came out fake breasts on, didn't he, or something in a wig and fake breasts. Yeah, I mean, it went down very badly, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a classic case of not reading the room, I think, you know, in that, in that instance. But but the next night, they, they did it straight and the, and the crowd loved it. But let's talk about Live Aid because that's, you know, one of the absolute landmarks. And, and Queen, frankly, stole the show there. And it's funny because they hadn't been part of the, of the single that Bob Geldof and company had put out before that, the We Are the World project. Or is it? No, I, I'm getting it mixed up. Which was the first oh, Geldof? Christmas. Do you know it's Christmas? Yeah, do they know it's Christmas? Yeah, to help uh, starving people in Africa. But then Geldof organizes this thing, and uh, he wants Queen at, in the show because he wants everybody who's big in the show. But nobody expected Queen to, frankly, steal the whole thing. No, they didn't. No, and I think what it what it boiled down to is is they used they drew on all their years of, of expertise as a live act. They were a fantastic live act. I mean, the show that they did at Live Aid wasn't significantly different. You know, the, the way that they performed generally was not any different really from how they were when I saw them a year earlier on the on the works tour. You know, all of that stuff Freddie Mercury was doing on stage at Wembley, he, he had been doing for years. And I think you got it condensed into something like 17 minutes. And they also had the good sense to just play the hits. They played a medley of, of, of songs as opposed to some of the other bands here who only had room to play two or three or and also saw it as an opportunity to flog their new singles, which nobody wanted to hear. Suddenly Queen come out and do a 17-minute greatest hit set and Freddie Mercury's just showboating across that stage. I don't think I've ever seen a man work as hard for an audience as he did then. I remember watching it on a television set in a pub here in the UK. I had a few drinks by then, um, but I remember thinking it was very good. And you know they, after it was done everybody just kept talking about it I don't really remember what, who was on after that I don't remember paying a lot of attention to it and they were excellent they were excellent because they had the songs and they had the performance and they were used to playing to huge huge crowds and and at that point they rejuvenated their career and they won over a whole new audience and they and they have kind of a valedictory run of hits in England but Freddie before his death got to do a pretty unusual project. And let's hear a little bit of it. This is Freddie Mercury with the great Spanish opera singer, let me get, try to pronounce her name right, Montserrat Caballé, doing Barcelona. Yeah. Oh, all right. Stop the celebrations. Freddie and the Spanish opera singer Montserrat Caballé doing Barcelona, which was part of a whole album project that came that they put together. Tell us how that project came about. 
well, I think he just wanted to do something different. He, he'd gone off on his solo trip by this point. He'd been paid a huge amount of money for a solo record that didn't really uh, sell as much as he, as anyone hoped it would do. I think he'd reached a point in his life by then where he just wanted to do things. I hate, I hesitate to use the term bucket list because that wasn't around then, but I do think there was a sense of I'm, I'm away from Queen, I'm going to do what I want. He'd come across her music before. He'd seen her, I think, on television before. He mentioned in an interview, I think, on Spanish TV that he'd love to work with her. I think it was a promoter in Spain kind of put the put the two of them together, and they they all kind of went out. They went out for lunch, along with uh, Freddie Mercury's sort of right hand man musical arrangement ranger, a guy called Mike Moran, who co wrote some of that stuff. And it was just let's do this. And it, it, again, it it was about confounding expectation. I think this is something we've not really touched on this, but I think this also applies to Hot Space and another one bites dust and all these things. I think of all of Queen, Freddie Mercury was the one that wanted to experiment and wanted to confound expectation and surprise people and even annoy people i think he took a certain pleasure in doing the unexpected and just as making a disco record was unexpected i think going to record with one of spain's greatest opera singers one of the world's greatest opera singers was another way of doing it again it took balls didn't it i mean to, to walk into a recording studio with an opera singer when you've just you've been the singer in a rock group and say hey let, let, let's make music together i i kind of admire him for that if nothing else absolutely and i think at the time it was seen as much more shocking and i think part of the reason rock critics were so resistant to classical influ influences in rock music is they had this perception of opera as some sort of highfalutin intellectual pretentious thing rather than what it really is which is pop music from the 19th century. I mean, Italian opera, German opera, it's just over the top. It's fun. It does have artistic validity, but it all, it never took itself too seriously. And it knew it had, had some ridiculous conventions, but it was about these masterful techniques and masterful songwriting and really going for the emotion and going for the gusto. And I think in the last 20 years or so, we've seen from the reality shows, you know, the music shows in England, we've had numerous amateur opera singers come out and had pop hits. And I think people today are much more accepting and kind of get where opera fits into the pop scene. Yeah, I think so. I think so yeah, because I think we've got access to so much more music now, really, rightly or wrongly, without having to pay for it. So you can, you can find anything you want to hear. I mean, it's interesting what you've just said, mate. Your description of opera is you could almost apply that to description to queen you know flamboyant over the top not taking it exactly. i think that you know so i think that you, you've made the parallels i wish i had had i wish i'd thought of that and put that in one of my books i may try and use your quote there next time if I'm you asked, do a new edition by all means <laughs> i'm asked to write about queen i'm gonna uh, bring wheel that one out as one of my own i'm sorry i'm taking that but it, it does say it does it, it you know you when it those are the parallels. It's obvious when you say that. You can see why they work together. And then, of course, Freddie tragically dies. Uh, he's a victim of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, which, you know, if he had caught it just a few months later, maybe he, he could have lived. His partner lived for many years because of the treatments that were discovered. But it was a very misunderstood affliction at the time, and there was a lot of shame associated with it. And your account, I think it makes it pretty clear, Freddie handled that pretty bravely. He kept it quiet as long as he could, but he wanted to be the one to announce it. He told the band, and he said, you know, I'm only going to discuss this once, ask me anything, but this is it. They had that conversation. And I think that's a classic sort of English reserved male way to do it. You know, they don't talk about feelings. They don't talk about emotions very often, yeah. but but they yeah. know they love each other and, th and they have that out. They stood together. They stood by him through that whole thing. He announced it so that it wouldn't be dug up, you know, by the, by the tabloid press. He passes. And at that point, his reputation does nothing but go up in the States. And it, it wasn't just that he was dead, but there's there's Wayne's World, which featured Bohemian Rhapsody in a great scene. And, and it comes out as a single again, and people remember it. But also he's mentioned in Kurt Cobain's suicide note as the sort of acme of rock stars and rock gods. And for me, I think that was a point when he was, you know, sanctified by Kurt Cobain, who had just martyred himself at that point. Gen X critics and younger came out of the closet and said, we loved Queen. We've loved Queen our whole lives. We don't care what the older baby boomers think anymore. And the millennials have just, just loved Queen right out the gate. And it's, it's uh, kind of nice to see a band win in the end. 
Yeah, I'd forgotten about the Kurt Cobain suicide. I forgot he was mentioned in that, actually. I didn't know that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it, it's something very English about it. Again, it's, this comes back to the fact that he was a very private person. He didn't trust a lot of people. He had good friends around him. He had people, not everybody around him who was close to him necessarily had his best interests at heart, and he was taken advantage of, I think, by a lot of by some people that were close to him. But again, he was an extremely private person. He was not somebody to ever get on any kind of political or charity bandwagon. I don't believe that Queen played Live Aid because Freddie Mercury was particularly moved by uh, film footage of, of, of people starving in Ethiopia. I think, I don't think that was necessarily the motivation behind it. He wasn't someone to get behind causes, whether that was uh, homosexuality, you know, talk, he never discussed his, his sexuality. He didn't become a figurehead for kind of gay, gay pride or anything like that. He certainly never discussed his ethnicity. So he was a very, very private person to the end. I, I do think, though, that one of the reasons he kept it as quiet as long as he did is he didn't want their, the prejudice to blow back on the other band members and their families. And he, he, this has been mentioned a couple of times because there was huge uh, stigma around AIDS and HIV at that time. Some of it was homophobia, a lot of it was just down to ignorance. We didn't know, people didn't know. And there was a lot of misinformation flying around at that time. And I think he didn't want his band mates and their children to to suffer as a result of that so i think that had a part in it as well which does come back to what we were talking about earlier about them all pulling together in the face of adversity but yes i mean i i found it quite amusing how when he died he became a bigger star in death than he was when he was alive particularly in terms of getting america back again because you know that that hadn't happened uh, and and like you say you mentioned wayne's world that that definitely was a tipping point Certainly. I was writing for music magazines by that time, and I suddenly became aware when I was talking to American rock bands, they were all talking about Queen again. And, and I remember Wayne's World coming out. It seemed to tie in, seemed to tie in with that. That seemed to be the catalyst. Absolutely. And Mark, it's been great talking to you about Queen and Freddie Mercury. The book is Is This the Real Life? The Untold Story of Queen. And also Freddie Mercury, A Kind of Magic by Mark Blake. Mark, thanks so much for coming back on the show. And I'd love to have you back to talk about The Who sometime. My pleasure. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, David N. Meyer returns to discuss his book, The Bee Gees, The Biography. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Is This the Real Life? The Untold Story of Queen is published by Aurum Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.